because while it's very possible for you to be much alive today, it's quite possible for you to still be spiritually dead. And so you must be born again, Jesus said, to enter God's kingdom. Some of you listening to me today have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And while you may be religious, you don't have the life that the Lord God wants you to have. But God came to give life, spiritual life, to be born from above, to have new life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. He said, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. I have come that you could have life and have it more abundantly. He is in the business of changing lives. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part Two. We are dealing with some doctrinal truths as we study the Bread of Life Discourse this week. It is a part of our greater study in the Gospel of John. Yesterday, we began looking at the significance of Jesus' statement in chapter 6, verse 50 and 51 in which he calls himself the bread sent from heaven and affirms anyone who eats that bread will live forever. Many mistaken analyses have been offered up regarding this passage, and we looked at three of those yesterday. As Pastor Carl continues today, he looks at a couple of more interpretations beginning with the belief that some have that by eating the flesh and drinking the blood in communion with God, we are given eternal life. This interpretation is thus one of works. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. And here he says, you need to eat my flesh. And they ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, obviously, this cannot be taken literally because of what follows. He said, I'm going to give myself for the whole world. I mean, did he really intend for us to think that the whole world is literally going to feast on his body Was he assuming that we're all going to take minuscule bites out of his flesh, enough for everyone to go around? I think any dullard could see that that's not what's in view. But these people are hung up on it. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because they're thinking on a purely physical level. They just can't take it in. They can't grasp it. And so with the pronouncement comes the perplexity, which leads us now to the promises. Beginning in verse 53, there are a series of promises where we want to camp the rest of our time this morning that the Lord gives. Notice, Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now, it's bad enough that he said you have to eat my flesh. Now he adds to that, you've got to drink my blood. Now, any Old Testament Jew who knew their Bible would find this absolutely repulsive. Circle that word drinking, would you? And write a little arrow out into the margin and jot down this verse, Leviticus 17, verse 10. Really, write down Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. Let me read it to you. God plainly, specifically said, And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. 
Now, God did not want his people to eat blood, and it was not purely for hygienic reasons. It was for a spiritual reason, because of the sacredness of the blood. He said, by reason of the life, the blood makes atonement. Why? Because the life is in the blood, the Bible declares. The penalty for sin is death. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Only the blood that pictures life can satisfy the debt that we owe before the Lord. And so right in the beginning of Scripture, God highlights the sacredness of blood. Adam and Eve come to God with their fig leaf religion, their own works, their own human effort. They make fig leaves for themselves. God's displeased. And so the very first death in all of human history takes place. God kills an innocent animal and creates coats of skin showing of the necessity of a blood atonement. He accepted Abel's offering. He rejected Cain because one brought the fruit of his own work. The other brought a blood sacrifice. He asked Abraham, to sacrifice Isaac up there on Mount Moriah, which is also Mount Calvary. And he asked him to take his uniquely begotten son. He was a uniquely begotten born, a term used of only two people in all the Bible, of Isaac and Christ, because Isaac, the Bible says, is a type of Christ. He was a miracle baby given to a couple who were long beyond their ability to conceive. And he brought him up there on Mount Moriah, believing that he would come back, believing that God would raise him out of the ashes back to a new life. But you know the rest of the story, how God intervened. But God was showing that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. He instituted the Passover land, lamb and then the entire sacrificial system. There are rivers of blood that go through the entire Old Testament, ultimately pointing towards that one blood sacrifice of Christ. And so the Lord says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in Himself. What does He do? He's pointing forward to His sacrificial death. And so the law of Moses forbade the drinking of blood and the meeting of eat, and even eating meat with the blood still in it. Why? Because it was sacred. And so God was highlighting the sacredness of Christ's blood. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, obviously, the Lord was not asking these people to violate, to disobey what God had specifically commanded in the Old Testament. He would never do that. He never tempted men to sin. He only called them to obedience and holiness. So what did he mean? Well, please notice, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Please notice the promise here that we will be raised up on the last day if we eat His flesh and drink His blood. Now, where else did you see that phrase, raised up on the last day? Well, look back in verse 40. It said, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The promise of being raised up on the last day is predicated, according to verse 40, on believing in Him. Look, the only difference between verse 54 and verse 40 is that one speaks of eating of His flesh and drinking of His blood, and the other believe, speaks of believing in Him, and the uh, same promise is attached to each one, being raised up on the last day. So what one means, the other has to mean. So obviously, in light of the law of Moses, he's not speaking literally, but metaphorically. His point is, is that for a man to have life, he must come to Christ. Just as you take food and drink into your body and it becomes a part of you, so you must take myself within yourself so that you can find real life. 
Now, understand there are people today who had the same problem that these folks have. They take this figure of speech literally. In fact, one of the most common errors in Bible interpretation is to take a figure of speech literally or to take something that was intended to be literally as a figure of speech. Well, how do you know how you should take it? Well, context always determines. You can always determine by the context whether it's figurative or literal. Now, for those of you who come from a Roman Catholic background, you know that these are the headquarter verses that the church at Rome uses to teach the doctrine of transubstantiation. Trans means change, a change of substance. They say that there is a point in the Mass where the priest holds the elements and the wafer and the juice are literally turned into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They take this passage and Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life. You'll never have eternal life. Well, there's only so much of Jesus to go around, so they believe that at the Lord's Supper, the elements are literally transformed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, they call that a miracle. They call it a miracle in the sense that the wafer still looks, smells, and tastes like a wafer, and the wine still looks, smells, and tastes like wine, but it's not. It's the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Well, to me, that depreciates a miracle. Because what makes a miracle a miracle is that it bypasses the natural laws that God wrote into this universe. Now, let me give you seven reasons why it is impossible to take this. And I'm not here to rag on Roman Catholics. Understand, there's a lot of good Roman Catholic people, some who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But this teaching is very dangerous. Because some people think that the way you get a relationship with God is just by partaking of the juice and of the wafer, the bread, at the communion table. And it's not. In fact, there's not some mystical, uh, mysterious, weird thing that happens at the Lord's Supper. It's a symbol. But let me give you seven reasons why it's impossible to take this literally and why it's a figure of speech. Number one, the context does not allow it. We just noted in verse 51... Jesus is using a future tense, I will give. He's looking ahead to a sacrificial death. And then very clearly, the eating and the drinking of verses 51 and verse 54 means the same thing as the coming and the believing of verses 35 and 40 because the same blessing is attached to both of them. The point is, is that when we come to Christ, when we believe in Him, it's the same as eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood because in both instances, God promises that he will raise us up on the last day. Not to mention, next time when we come to verse 63, he makes it very clear that he was not speaking literally. Notice it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in life. And so there's no way under God's heaven that the context allows for a literal rendering of these phrases. But number two, I believe that you should not take this literally because if you take it literally, you have to conclude that the Lord was encouraging people to cannibalism. He was encouraging people to sin. And God explicitly, explicitly said in Genesis 9 and Leviticus 17 that you are never to do that. The Lord never tempted people to sin, only to obey. And so to say, as some do, that these elements are literally changed into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, really to partake, thinking that it really is, knowing what God says in the Old Testament, would be to act sinfully. Third, I do not believe it is the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And by the way, that's the terms that God uses to describe this ordinance in the church. 
This is not always true, but typically, typically when people call it something other than what God calls it, the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, they usually infuse more meaning into that ceremony than God's Word actually teaches. You bank on that. You think about that when you're in other places that call it something else. Now listen, when the Lord's Supper was instituted, who was it instituted for? For God's people. For those who knew Him as their personal Savior. And so why would the Lord discuss with a group of un uh, with a group of unbelievers, with a group of disagreeable people, the Lord's Supper. He hadn't even shared that truth yet with his own disciples. It would not be for a whole other year until we come to John chapter 13 that he will institute the Lord's Supper as a memorial for his people. And so that table is not for the unbelieving, it is for the believing. Fourth, I believe it's impossible to take this literally because to say that a man receives eternal life by eating the bread and drinking the juice is to deny the truth of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's God's gift, not of works, so that nobody can go around bragging. Listen, it becomes now a work that man has to do in order to obtain salvation. Because the Lord is explicitly clear, unless you eat of this body and drink of this blood, there's absolutely no life whatsoever. Look, the table doesn't impart life. It just looks back on how life is given. It, we do this in remembrance of him. It's a memorial of what he did on Golgotha. But again, very often people take these human analogies, when the Lord uses a human analogy to convey spiritual truth, and they get it all balled up just like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Fifth, I think it's impossible to take this as a reference to the Lord's table because it removes the grace of God from some people to whom the Bible teaches the grace of God is accessible. Let me give you an example. I met a man this week, and, and he told me that he believed that baptism saved. That apart from baptism, you could not be saved. And so I asked him this question. I said this to him. I said, years ago, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. And I was walking into the campus of the University of North Carolina, and about 10 yards in front of me was a young man and as he came up on that intersection, he stepped into the intersection and a brick truck slammed on his brakes and hit this young man. Fell to the ground. His blood is coming out of his ears. He's still conscious. People run to get help. I stand over this young man. I get down on my knees next to him. It looks awful bad. He's still conscious. And I begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. A few minutes later, he goes into unconsciousness. And within an hour or two later, he dies. Now, by the way, he was a member of a fraternity house that we had been trying to get into for years. And they always shut us out. After his death, the door was wide open, and we went into that fraternity and shared the gospel with over 100 men. But that man died. And I asked him, I said, just for the sake of argument, Suppose he heard and understood what I shared with him concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, on that bloody street, he received the Lord Jesus, but never got baptized. Would he go to heaven? He said, absolutely not. I said, let me ask you this. I said, I've got some good, dear Presbyterian friends. We have a sister church relationship with the Presbyterian church up in Columbia. Now, they believe in infant baptism. I think they're wrong, but I love them anyway. And that doesn't stop us from uh, working together to share the gospel. 
But nonetheless, I said, none of those dear presbos, for the most part, have ever been baptized. I said, do you think they're lost and going to hell? He said, yes. Now follow this. This is important because people do with baptism what they often do with the Lord's Supper. They put more into it than God actually explicitly says. Notice verses 53 and 54. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. No exceptions. If he was speaking of a church ordinance or a sacrament or whatever else you want to call it, then anybody who has never participated in the Lord's table has no possibility for salvation. Whether it's the Old Testament saints, whether it's the thief on the cross, whether it's a host of people who have received the Lord in emergency situations, I've led a number of people to Christ on their deathbed in the hospital, whether it's someone in a foxhole, or whatever the circumstances may be, if you take this literally, that you must literally eat of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, there is absolutely no salvation apart from the communion table. And that would contradict the rest of the light of Scripture. Six, there's a linguistic argument. It's found in the original. It's what's called the aorist tense. He uses the word eating and drinking here in an aorist tense. The aorist tense speaks of a once and for all act. Now, the Lord's table is something we are called to do habitually over and over and over again to remember the Lord at because God knows how fickle we are. But this eating, this drinking happens once because it's compared to believing. You don't believe and get saved and get lost and believe again and get saved and get lost and believe again and get saved and get lost. You believe once, and when you believe, you are saved forever. Seventh, it's significant, I think, that he uses the word flesh, and it's never used in reference to the Lord's table. Neither in the Gospels when Christ institutes it, not in the Acts of the Apostles where it's illustrated, nor in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul explains it. He uses the word body. He doesn't say this is my flesh. He says this is my body. And so if a person holds that our Lord was speaking about the communion table, then to be consistent, you must believe that somehow the two elements are literally changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ because that's the only way you can take it. But the context in the rest of Scripture is very clear that this is not literal but figurative. But here's the point. There is no salvation apart from coming to Jesus Christ. Now remember, there's a series of promises here. We're calling this section the promises, three in particular. Look at verse 53 where he gives a promise for new life. He said, truly, truly, by the way, that's the fourth time in this sermon where he uses those words, amen, amen, literally in the Greek. He is saying, listen, this is important. It's not accidental what I'm going to say. It's very deliberate. It's something you can take home and bank on. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Circle those two words. You have no life and yourself. And so the corollary is true. If you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have life. Now remember in John chapter 3, God describes us as walking dead people. Paul will speak of those who are dead even while they live. Because while it's very possible for you to be much alive today, it's quite possible for you to still be spiritually dead. And so you must be born again, Jesus said, to enter God's kingdom. Some of you listening to me today, 
have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And while you may be religious, you don't have the life that the Lord God wants you to have. But God came to give life, spiritual life, to be born from above, to have new life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. He said, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. I have come that you could have life and have it more abundantly. He is in the business of changing lives. He took Saul the bigot, Saul the murderer, and made him Paul the apostle. He took people like foul-mouthed John Bunyan, who later wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he saved him, and he changed him. He took that immoral profligate John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and he saved him, and he changed him. And he took highly moral religious people like Martin Luther and John Wesley and, and John Calvin and others who had no living relationship with God, and he saved them, and he changed them. And I can testify, he saved me, and he changed me as well. But you can only get it by eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. Now, this is a very important phrase because without doing that, there is no life. But when you do that, he promises new life, but not only new life, eternal life. Look again in verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, circle that word, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you eat his flesh, that is, accept his person. If you drink his blood, that is, accept his death. You will have eternal life. Now, again, if you take this to be communion, then you have to say that anyone who has ever taken of communion has this eternal life. And Catholics aren't even prepared to do that. No, this is simply an analogy of receiving Christ as your Savior. Again, note the tense, has today eternal life, because eternal life is more than heaven. It is a relationship with God. It is life that lasts forever. It begins here on earth, and it goes into heaven. It's a living, loving relationship with the Savior. Listen, if the Savior doesn't come back first, my body may roll over dead someday, but I won't, because I will get a change of residence from earth to heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Not only will I get new life, not only do I get eternal life, a living relationship with God, ultimately I will get a resurrected life. He promises I will raise him up on the last day. And so then he adds in verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, the other foods of the Old Testament, like the manna, had certain value but Christ's body and blood is referred to as true food and true drink. Remember, these people were enamored with the manna that God provided through Moses, but that was not true food. It was only a type. It was only a picture, a foreshadowing. And these people, of course, were enamored with the bread and the loaves that Christ provided when he fed the 20,000. He said, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were full. But it was temporal. It was temporal life. It was not real food. Only Christ is the real food because only Christ can save you. By the way, this verse demolishes salvation by works because the power is not in the eating. The power is in the food. There's nothing glorious about my faith. It's the object of my faith that saves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he says, abides in me and I in, I in him. He's saying there's no way for you to be right with me, for you to abide in me, and for me to abide in you apart from eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But for those who do, they will have the closest possible relationship with the Lord. He who eats, he who drinks, abides in me, and I in him. 
Now, a man must be willing to accept that only through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the offering of his own flesh, can he achieve eternal life. Do you know what the greatest stumbling block was for the Jewish people to accept Jesus as the Messiah? It was that he was a crucified Messiah, a bloody Messiah. And so Paul spent three Sabbaths with the church at Thessalonica and with the Jews who came in trying to convince them from the scriptures there in the synagogue that Jesus is the Christ, that he had to suffer, that he had to die. It was offensive to them. Do you know what was offensive to the Gentiles? A bloody Messiah. When Paul wrote to the Greeks at Corinth, he said the preaching of the cross is offensive. Do you know what people have today? The real problem they have with the Lord Jesus is that he is a bloody Messiah. One president of a major denomination said, I do not believe in the doctrine of salvation by blood. Thank God that I am not saved by the blood of anyone. Salvation by the blood of the fundamentalist gospel is of the butcher shop. I want to tell you, friend, if you don't identify with the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, you will have no life. And so he closes this section by coming back to his mission. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. Now circle that word sent. You and I were born into this world. Jesus Christ was sent into this world. There was never a time when Christ was not, but there was a time when he did not have a body, which is what this verse refers to. I live because of the Father. Now the cults take this verse out of the context of this chapter, of this gospel, of this Bible, and they argue from this verse that Jesus Christ is not God, that he was created, that he lives because of the Father, that the Father is God and Jesus is not. But understand, John has already said in his prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And to make it very clear, he said the Word became flesh. But God the Father was involved with God the Holy Spirit in overshadowing the womb of Mary and generating humanity and adding to that to Christ's deity and inseparably combining them into one person. And so in that sense, he says, I live because of the Father, and you'll live because of me. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, God the Father sent me from heaven so that you can come to heaven. I came from heaven to earth that you can go from earth to heaven so that you can have real life. And then he clarifies in verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. As wonderful as that manner was, it had no living, giving quality in it. The people ate it, and sooner or later, they died. Not because they ate it, but because they got old. It didn't impart life. But Christ is saying, as the true bread, as the true drink, I am able to give life. It's unlike any bread before. If you partake of this, he said, you shall live forever. Oh, if you're not raptured, you may have to go through the gate of death to go into heaven. But dear friend, you will never, ever, ever die. You will live forever in the Lord. In essence, is saying, take it or leave it. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 019. Don't forget that you can download the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes and Google Play Store. 
You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a hard copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.